0: Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shomon Katoshu Daikusoku Joshu Hakujo Entangling Vines Case 9 Joshu's Juniper Tree A monk once asked Joshu Jushin, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Joshu answered, the juniper tree in the front garden. The monk replied, master, don't teach me using external objects. Joshu said, I am not teaching you using external objects. The monk asked, What is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the west? Joshu answered, The juniper tree in the front garden. Afterward, Hogen mon asked Kaku Tetsushi, I heard that your teacher, Joshu, spoke of a juniper. Is that true? Kaku Tetsushi replied, My late teacher never said such a thing. Don't slander him. Hogan commented, The true child of a lion gives a good lion's roar. It's afternoon. Darkness is coming to embrace us soon again on this one long day of Rohatsu. It's been a lot of fun so far, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything from temperatures in the 50s to 15 degrees, blue sky with sunlight fog, and today just a little dusting of snowflakes, snowflakes covering up our tracks that we leave as human beings in this world. It's a little more chilly. You can probably feel it in your bones, but that's not a bad thing. When I look back at uh, my ordination teacher, he always preferred the cold season to the hot season. It is true, when it is hot, you can sit in the zendo and literally melt. But heat is more a natural feeling of expansion while the cold is more a natural feeling of contraction, of becoming smaller and smaller. And it draws us inside. And the same thing that happens with that, when we are drawn inside to look clearly, we get to the sky, the boundless sky of Samadhi. And if you looked out the window last night or took a little step outside, You would have had a preview of the morning star with all the other stars sparkling up there on this vast, unimaginable expanse that we cannot comprehend, but that we certainly can feel. There was one thing that struck me that Shingiroshi talked about yesterday, so I wanted to follow up on it. It's very important. Um, So how is everybody doing with the Zen spa? (laughs) Are you getting all the services you ordered on your menu? Is there anything else you would like us to clip? (laughs) Clip your sleep? Clip your freedom to do whatever you think you should be doing at this very moment? Any other clippings? Oh. Oh, you are very good customers. But also, one thing that came to mind was the Zen spa. I would think a Zen spa would advertise, you come here, and we will make you feel better. Now, a real Zen spa would advertise that it makes you feel. That's it. It makes you feel. What have you begun to feel that you have not felt before here? We talked a lot about dying and all of that. What kind of feeling is that? To spend this long day to listen to talks about Arduous practice, people stabbing themselves with awls in their limbs to stay awake. Well, that's not good advertisement, I would say. But you can, can you relate to the feeling of the urgency of really wanting and really feeling that need to become complete? I think and I feel that you can feel it in the same way you feel the vast expanse of the sky when you just stand there in awe. So this zen spa makes you feel. Unfortunately, you cannot pick the feelings from a menu. They come in random order and in various intensities. And we have a no return policy. (laughs) Excuse me, I ordered good feelings. Why am I getting this river of things I really wanted not to look at? Everything happens here. Everything is exposed. It just takes time to be exposed. Don't feel embarrassed. Just feel human and know that everybody, wherever they sit, if they sit in the front of the row, if they sit in the doksan room, wherever they sit, we are all human beings together in this one great spa adventure (laughs) of a long day so today again we meet one of the great zen masters joshu jushin joshu jushin appears in a lot of koans so it is never uh, wasted to talk about him a little bit he will become very very familiar to you like a companion on this road, Joshu Jushin. Even though he lived over 1,200 years ago, the dates are given as 778 until 897. Who's good at math? Wow, that's pretty old. Almost 120 years he lived. He appears in 23 cases in the Shumon Shu alone. You might remember who his teacher was. Anybody? Nansen. Nansen was Joshu's teacher. And Joshu started fairly early with Nansen. When he was 18 years old, he joined Nansen's assembly. Uh, It wasn't assembly at that time. It was just Nansen was in a very small place. But there comes this young Joshu, 18 years old. And right then, in the very first year with Nansen, Joshu has an awakening. His first experience of seeing self-nature, of Kensho, Have you ever looked at the characters for Kensho, the first character, Ken, to see? It's the character of an eye on legs. That is seeing. So his first Kensho, he said about it, suddenly, I was ruined and homeless. That's not what you really would want to hear, right? it sounds rather unsettled why would we do all of this if we are ruined and homeless already here with the saying at this age we can feel that joshua is not the stick yielding will yelling kind of master He used words, and it is always said when he spoke, golden light was coming from his lips. He stayed with Nansen for 40 years. 40 years. Nansen died. Joshu mourned and kept his grave for three years. And then he set out for a 20-year pilgrimage afterwards. A true manifestation of somebody who never settles, who goes on for 30 more years over and over, four times 30 years in this case. And it is important also to note how he approached this path he took, so he set out then at age 60 on this pilgrimage to see more teachers, to see more like-minded practitioners. And he set out after having had this wonderful experience of such an extraordinary Zen master for over 40 years with the humility that is not only admirable, but something to truly consider. He said, I will even ask a child of seven years to teach me if their understanding is deeper than mine. And I will teach even a man of a 100 years of age if my understanding is deeper than his. We heard yesterday when Roshi spoke about Hakuin's young female student. Joshu would have been grateful to learn from her. It took him some time. So 20 years, 60 plus 20 is 80. So when he turned 80, he became the temple abbot of this temple in the place that's called Joshu, where his name comes from. It is said that he died at age 120, and that is the Asian counting. It's 119 years, but you are always a year older. Sometimes it's really quite difficult to deal with that. We had one monk coming from Japan to visit us in California. And, of course, we asked before, how old are you? Oh, I'm 63. Oh, very good, very good. We can buy you senior tickets, 62 and older. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, it didn't turn out that way. He he hasn't turned 62 yet, and uh, the airline didn't really like that so much. So always a year older than you are. And many of the koans that we know and that we all cherish so much is, they have these words that still just the words themselves emanate light. All of us know case one of the Khan begins actually exactly like this case begins. Joshu Osho, Jinami ni Soto. Joshu Osho was asked by an approaching monk. And then the questions, of course, they are different. Now, since I'm speaking about Mu, Roshi talked about Ganto's death cry. And that we can give ourselves to our own Mu in the morning, in, at the end of the Enmei Juku Kanongyo and make it one of those, not one of those, that very death shout. That brought me to think about that there are many, many different ways of shouting Mu. And it's like in the koan practice. We have to learn what is appropriate where and when, just like in the koan practice. The moo Mu shout must fit the occasion like a lid on a box in the same way that the answer to a koan has to fit the koan like a lid on a box that is presented. So the death shout, our death shout, It's, a very, it's, it's in a specific way, yeah? It is an all out. No holding back, no artifice, nothing. And if your horse afterwards, well, if you're still alive, uh, you failed. But <laughs> if you're horse, so be it, so be it. It's a wonderful thing to hear the following bodhisattvas vow. That means you have really given yourself fully. There are other ways of shouting moo. You can hear people going to Sangha Meadow and you hear the long, drawn out moo as long as possible. Yeah? That's a wonderful place to do that. Maybe not so much in uh, in morning service. If you do that in the morning service, it's it's I can only imagine one death that would have a shout like that, and that would be on the opera stage, you know? <laughs> on the stage of the opera, yeah? Don Joshu entering stage left, <laughs> rousing music, da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, da da The other side, stage left, comes a dog. Joshu comes out, <laughs> takes his sword, and he goes, no! That's not the mood that we need in the morning. You can do that on the stage. But in the morning, try tomorrow to just give yourself fully as if you were dying, without orchestra and audience, alone, slain by robbers. The talking about death also reminded me, and I meant to include it in the talk about death, but I didn't find time, or my mind wandered. I forgot about it. Zen is not a heroic thing. It's neither athletic nor heroic. Ah, death. I will face death. Yeah. We don't know when it comes. And dying is a very difficult thing to do. In the same way that we don't want to die a Zen hero, have, as Roshi asked you to, have a look at that wonderful painting of Pata Maxima that's hanging there. And you will also see that Siddhartha, who is sitting there, he is actually not fighting. There are all kinds of sharp implements being stuck into his being single-minded. But he himself if you wanted to call that a weapon, that would be the only thing he has, just his being. There is no shield there. Any NRA members here know? He didn't have a gun either. And he doesn't need it. Neither do we. I know we have some fighters among us. And sometimes we have to unlearn to fight. No Zen heroes, no Zen heroines, no fighters in the term of fighting a battle against. It's always described as a battle, but that's from the point of view of Mara, who came and fought the battle battle. It wasn't Siddhartha who was fighting. If he had fought, he probably would have lost. So here's our koan today, Case 9. It seems to me that the beginning of this Shumon Kattushu has one heavy koan after another. So this is one of the most famous koans that you find in every Zen book that talks about koans. So here is Joshu Osho. A monk comes and asks him, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? I think by now we all know that this is language that describes what question. Uh, What is the essence of Zen? Well, let's say it in a different way. What did Bodhidharma want to transmit when he made the long trip from India? This is a long, long, long time ago. And why do they say he came from the West? Hmm? Of course, from being in China, Most people who came from India came from the West because they came along the Silk Road. So China referred to India as West. But Bodhidharma came over the ocean. The journey took three years, and he was already an old man. What is the essence of Zen? Is this monk just a wise ass who's coming and says, oh, let me check out, let me check out what Joshua has to say because he, had, he doesn't have anything better to do? No dogs around? What is he asking? One of those questions, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? Who am I? What is this about here? What is truth? What is awakening? Am I awakened? Are you awakened? Is anyone awakened? Is Buddha nature eternal? If my Buddha nature is eternal, what happens to it when I die? Well, if not eternal, what happens to it when I die? So all kinds of questions. Really, really, it is a question that this monk had that put him in great distress to come forward and face somebody like Joshua. These questions, they remind me of... uh, the Sutra 63, that you can find in the Majima Nikaya. And there's a monk described by the name of Malunkya Putta. Malunkya Putta he was troubled by similar questions. He, he was wondering, and he was in the first generation of, uh, of the uh, bhikshus with Shakyamuni being alive, And he was wondering why Shakyamuni set aside and rejected a couple of issues and questions. Is the world eternal? The world is not eternal. The world is finite. The world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body. The soul is one thing and the body another. After death, a Tathagata exists. After death, a Tathagata does not exist. After death, a Tathagata neither exists and does not exist. All of this was going through this guy's head, Malunkya Putta. He was really, really troubled by it. And so he walked up to the Buddha, to confront him about it. And he also makes a statement that if Shakyamuni does not explain this, then he will abandon the training and return to the low life. Shakyamuni told Putta that he had left these questions Undeclared because they are unbeneficial and do not belong to the fundamentals of the holy life. And also do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nirvana. There are a lot of philosophical questions that are asked. Does it exist? Does it not exist? Does it neither exist nor exist? Does it exist and not exist? You you can play games with that a lifetime. So how did Shakyamuni answer? The Buddha told Malunkya Putta the parable of the wounded man. And I'm going to read it to you. Suppose, puta, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin, or a merchant, or a worker. And he would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know the man who wounded me was tall or short or of middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the man who wounded me lives in such a village or town or city, until I know whether the bow, the, the bow that wounded me was a long bow or a crossbow, until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or of a hawk, a peacock or a stork, until I know with what kind of sinew the shaft that wounded me was bound, whether that of an ox or a buffalo or a lion or a monkey, until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed or oleander. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile, he would die. So, Chu, Malunkia Putta, if anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life under the world-honored one until the world-honored one declares to me the world is eternal or after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. That would still remain undeclared by the Tathagata, and meanwhile, that person would die. And what have I declared? said the Buddha. This is the truth of suffering. I have declared. This is the origin of suffering. I have declared, this is the cessation. I have declared, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That I have declared. So what is the essence of Zen? (laughs) These stories, they go very, very well together. The Buddha, Shakyamuni, declared the four noble truths. What did Joshua declare? The juniper tree in the front garden. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute. I thought it was an oak tree. (laughs) Would that make any difference? Ah, I don't think so. The tree is often translated as oak. And the reason for that is that the character in Japanese is read kashiwa, which means oak. But that's not a not traditional Chinese reading. The type of tree is actually a juniper tree, some kind of Chinese juniper. Sometimes it's called a cypress tree. yeah. But going back to the time when the character was used, it would be some kind of juniper tree. And very interesting is that Harara Shodo Roshi, who is also... Uh, a successor to Yamada Mumon, who we heard about a little bit, he commented at some point that this being a juniper, Chinese juniper leads this whole thing even a little more flavor because the Chinese juniper is useless for lumber and also for nearly any other purpose. So he selected the perfect tree for that. So whenever we ask questions like the questions that I recited before, like the question the monk is asking here for, some kind of declaration is not going to do it. And when we look at koans like this, or in general koans, what we see in a koan very much depends on what we have seen. There are many, many different levels, many, many different aspects and angles that we can detect according to our ability to see, our experience. The first one that might come up here is the juniper tree in the front garden, an answer that points maybe to Suchness. Tatata. Dharmata. Or shinyo in Japanese. Just as it is. Everything is as it is. Right there. Hey, stupid monk, can't you see that? That's certainly one way to look at it. It puts it then with three pounds of flax and this and that, just declarations. But that's very declarative, isn't it? So maybe we have to look deeper. And the monk was exactly going in that direction because he complained Master, don't teach me using external objects. Bad master, bad master. Don't do that. Now, of course, by making such a statement, we can clearly see what kind of chains in the mind this monk is carrying around. Because all he can do to relate to that juniper tree in the front garden is as an external object. No wonder he has this burning question. That's a very good reason. I can only relate to things as things, but I feel there is something that is more than just that. Here we can see the root of this monk's very deep desire and intention to find out more. Now, we could also look at it from a point of view that we could say, well, that juniper is everything. Nothing else is there. Not you, not the Buddha. It is a manifestation of the Dharmakaya, the great buddha body all is one that has a very absolute kind of taste you know yeah the roots they touch the ground the ground touches everything all the atoms that are around blah, 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 blah. a lot of again explanation and declaration So after his complaint to Joshu, the monk asked again, now, come on, tell me again, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Joshu answered, the juniper tree in the front garden. This is Joshu's expression. in the same way that Shakyamuni Buddha expressed his teaching. Just very different, because they are different people. There's one thing that we recite, recite in the morning, every morning here, in English and also in Japanese. And in that Sutra, it says shiki fu i ku. ku, fu i shiki, shiki soku ze ku, ku soku ze shiki. Form is no other than shunyata, shunyata is no other than form. Interesting, the character shiki is the, also the character for color, so the colors we see is a manifestation of shunyata and shunyata is such an important thing that we have to think about it and I already gave it away I gave it away don't teach us using external objects like things but Darn, we are human. And there are only words that we can use at times. So, since we are human, we think of a thing for Shunyata, which is also kind of a dangerous thing. You know, this morning in the Diamond Sutra, it was read once again. No idea of an ego entity a personality, a being, or a separated individuality. And that is what Shunyata is. We like to think of this black hole because we have to think of a thing. Everything comes from emptiness. But if you think that way, if we think that way, then this is just another fancy material or matter that makes up things. The God substance is emptiness. But emptiness is not that easily approached, not with the idea of emptiness for sure. Remember the sixth ancestor in the Platform Sutra it says, Honrai mu ichimotsu. Originally, originally, not a single thing exists. Not a single thing. Not even emptiness. The Platform Sutra, Rokusuo. Hoho dankyo. Honrai right. yeah. mu ichimotsu, originally, not a single thing exists. The emptiness of emptiness, the shunyata of shunyata, speaks about the unspeakable, the ungraspable, the unimaginable. But there is a tree. We could talk about the tree as the intersection between the unspeakable and the graspable. But again, that's so lame. It's lame because it's two, two things that, that intersect. Yeah? It's completely different. And when you do Zazen and you have a little... No, it's actually not you. You disappear and chunyata eats you up and everything. Then you understand what it means. But it is a simultaneous existence where you have the graspable, but also the unspeakable, ungraspable, unimaginable at the same No word. And that's important. So Joshua's expression, the tree, the juniper tree in the garden, gives the monk two things. Number one, it deprives him of any kind of declaration that he could grasp onto. But also, it provides him something that is real, that is there. And most of all, it is alive. So he can relate to that. And it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. Dogen Zenji said, he wrote, when the self carries itself forward and affirms the 10,000 things, we call it delusion. When the myriad things come forward and affirm the self, we call it realization. So it has a lot of importance here what the relationship is. In other words, as long as there is a stake in the ground, a point of view to which we are tethered, to which we are chained, like this monk, the 10,000 things are just objects for him. A tree? Really? A tree? You can do better, Joshua. Give me some of your golden words. That is called delusion. But in the same turnaround, not in a dualistic way, the myriad of things come forward and affirm the self that arises with them spontaneously without having that stake in the ground. That is realization. That stake is a very good image, because the stake that you put in the ground goes right through the heart of life, and distance appears between things and you. Koan continues. Two more people appear. We won't talk too much about them. But one is Hogan Moneki, and the other one is called Kaku Tetsushi. And Kaku was a student of Joshu, a successor of Joshu. So Hogan says to Kaku, I heard that your teacher, Joshu, spoke of a juniper. Is that true? That already sounds like it's like an accusation, right? Yeah. You're breathing. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, of course. Everybody knows that he spoke about the juniper tree. Kaku replied, my late teacher never said such a thing. Don't slander him. Is he denying that his teacher said anything about the tree? Did he really take it as an accusation? Don't slander him. And a filthy tree. <laughs> There is another saying about Zen teachers and their masters. And it says, a good child does not live on the money of their parents. It's such a very, very interesting thing to look at and it's important that we all understand that for ourselves you know we come into this practice we find a wonderful teacher and we study with that teacher and at some point there grows this little thing that that tells you i just want to be like him or her that's 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 this this is the understanding. I just want to be just like that. And if Hogan asked here, he was not asking about Joshua, he was asking, Kaku, hey, are you one of those people who is walking in the shoes of another person? There are times we have to walk in other people's shoes so we can learn what their experience of life is. It's very, very important. If you think of this world and all the harm that is done all around to other human beings, to the environment, and It's very easy to judge everybody in that context. And I would not even dare to say that we should distinguish between victims and perpetrators. We have to understand everybody. And for that, we have to know what the shoes feel like. Some of us never knew what it means to be discriminated against in ways that other people have had an experience all their lives. Overtly discriminated or on a very micro level. And especially as Zen students and as beings who are looking forward to become more aware and more awake, we always have to look under our own feet first, looking at our microaggressions that we might carry with us. We know it doesn't mean anything in the American politics. You can say that you would want to go and go with somebody to a public hanging, and it has absolutely no effect. But we as more aware human beings have to learn how to parse our assumptions, our words, and our actions so that we don't unreflectedly perpetuate harmful behavior. It's part of the practice. Now see where a pair of shoes can take you? But if you walk in the shoes of your teacher, you are just like Kosen daito says. You are not worthy to call yourself a descendant of mine, no matter how long you sit, how, how few hours you lie down, and how little you eat. The guy in the hut that is thatched with a single bundle of straw and eats the root vegetables that are boiled in a broken-legged pot, has no shoes but his own. So Hogan is asking Kaku, let me see if you are regurgitating what your parent has fed you. And if you look around, and uh, we come back to books, yeah? I spoke about books the last time. You can find books that are full of spiritual vomit. <laughs> it's quite disgusting. But something to be beheld at times. Now, being a true person who has received the transmission of the intransmissible of the ancestors and the buddhas fuden no as it says in the daitokokushi kaku replies ah my late teacher never said such a thing don't slander him showing clearly that he is not riding out his career on vomiting up stuff that somebody else fed him. We all have to become that way. We all have to become that way that we speak for ourselves. And so, at times, we speak as fools. And so be it. If you are a fool, you want to be a complete fool and sometimes we are wrong as long as we have the openness and capability to learn from our mistakes and not repeat them it is okay to be wrong to make mistakes this ought Authenticity, this being, living you is so, so important. Well, the Buddha said this and this. Joshua said that and that. No. When you go into Doksan with Roshi or any kind of Dharma teacher who is worth Visiting, they won't accept that. It's counterfeit. Counterfeit. Hogan's comment in the end of this corn points to that. The true child of a lion gives a good lion's roar by pushing back saying, no, my teacher never said that. Don't slander him. You can learn how to roar. You can learn how to shout moo. But it has to come from your throat. And it comes with your breath, driven by your heartbeat. Now, if you want to look at the juniper tree, that is quite interesting as that intersection or the point where the graspable and the non-graspable meets. I'm looking at the grove of juniper trees, all in their own right and beauty. Now it is your job, your vow in this practice to resolve this relationship of not graspable and to bring it in this world where that true love, in the end, is sorely needed. Siddhartha set a very, very good example that has Humanity, for over 2,500 years, follow his few declarations. But all of that is worth none unless you, and I mean each of you, and I, and us, we all actually do it. please have added. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudiesorg donate Thank you for listening.